Thank you for listening to the sermon podcast from Grace Anglican Church of Grove City, Pennsylvania. Our goal in every sermon is to proclaim the bold truth of the Word of God, especially the undiluted grace of Jesus Christ. If you want to learn more about our church, check out our website at graceanglicanonline.com. It's really always been my very earnest belief that no Christian sermon is complete without a quotation from Trent Reznor of Nine Inch Nails. Uh, That was very funny, what I just said. And uh, he, in the uh, 1990s, wrote a song called Hurt, which was subsequently covered by Johnny Cash in a uh, very compelling uh, music video, actually. Uh, But uh, I really like the song, actually, because it uh, chronicles, in a harrowing and memorable way, Reznor's own difficulties with and regrets because of drug addiction. And he, in that uh, song, offers a line that has always stuck with me, and I uh, think of it often. He says, or sings, if I could start again a million miles away, I would keep myself. I would find a way. Uh, I love that line, if I could start again a million miles away. I mean, who hasn't felt that way? You know, if you could do things differently, if you could go back and spend that extra time with your eldest child, if you could uh, undo those uh, rage fits that you had with your spouse, if you could uh, unmake your own jealousy and horrific resentment against your sibling, if you could uh, leave work an hour early and uh, cook dinner once in a while for your family, if you could take away that affair from 1997, if you could turn back time, you know unmake it. What I like about Res, what Reznor says is he said, I would walk a million miles. And wouldn't you? Wouldn't you walk to Saturn if you could? If you could unmake the horror show of your own history. And uh, what he's hungering for and what we're all hungering for, uh, whether we verbalize it or not, is some sort of personal renaissance, a personal rebirth, a renewal, uh, some sort of situation in our own lives in which the past can be cured and quelled and we can march on without the hang-ups that have uh, hanged us up in the past. And uh, I want to consider this chapter in the life of Joseph because I think it shows us that Uh, A grand renewal is possible. It did happen for this man. It really did happen for Joseph. Joseph saw his life take a very different turn, and in a way, it healed the past. It healed the past. And I want to speak about him, but not as a template, of course, not as a perfect template for all of our experiences. I mean, you are not Joseph, right? It's the one, uh, well, there are many terrible things about moralistic preaching, but one of them is that they just tell you to be like Joseph or be like David or be like Solomon without ever consulting you about the dark elements of, you know, Joseph, David, and Solomon. Um, But you can't share their experiences, and also you don't live in the Bronze Age. You know, you, you have that against you. You don't live in Egypt. You've probably never been to Egypt. You've never been a slave. You've never been Hebrew. You don't read Hebrew. And I barely read Hebrew, you know, so we can't really replicate his life experience, and nor are we supposed to. And yet, I think Joseph's individual experiences do offer us a window into a more universal renewal that with God we can experience, that with God your life can be different. With God as the missing and secret ingredient, 
the trajectory of life can, uh, can go in a bold and wonderful and glorious and healing direction. And that's what I want for you. And it's certainly what I want for myself as well. And so I want to talk about renaissance and renewal, which is all over this particular chapter of Holy Scripture. So I want to talk about the renewal of status, the renewal of family, and the renewal of responsibility. And note some key verses which underscore uh, each point. So the renewal of status. I invite you to take up your bulletin, turn it open to the passage. And this is uh, verse 39, which is where our text begins. Uh, And this is Pharaoh's uh, response to Joseph's great interpretation of his own dark dreams. Verse 39. Pharaoh said to Joseph, since God has shown you all this, there is none so discerning and wise as you are. You shall be over my house and all my people shall order themselves as you command. Now, just a word of context. Pharaoh has had two uh, very disturbing dreams. Uh, His... uh, inner cultists, right? The religious apparatus of the day couldn't interpret them. So he seeks out a Hebrew and he hopes that this Hebrew who has a, an interpretive uh, reputation is able to shed some light on the dreams. And Joseph does. He interprets Pharaoh's dark dreams as suggesting you're going to have seven years of agricultural success, but then you're going to um, plummet into darkness. And, uh, and if you're not careful, your people are all, all going to starve to death. So you need to make good during the first seven years and store up enough, store up enough food to survive the uh, famine that is to come. <coughs> Excuse me. And Pharaoh is so overwhelmed with gratitude because Joseph, this religious Hebrew, has saved the lives of hundreds of thousands of people, right, prevented starvation, that he bestows upon Joseph a new status and makes him quite functionally royal makes him a vice regent of the kingdom, elevates him to a uh, place of uh, prominence in which he is the second in command in Egypt. But in terms of the day-to-day, apparatus of Egypt has more authority, or at least functional authority, than Pharaoh. Uh, and so he becomes extremely important. And I think that the Joseph saga has elements of the prodigal son sprinkled through it Right? We, we have this young man who begins his life as a spoiled, rich lordling, and then he uh, turns from a braggart to a victim as his brothers, who are very jealous of him, commit near fratricide, but they decide instead of spilling his blood to just sell him off to a heathen land. Uh, but then he gets a little bit of success and he becomes the chief servant to a very high, uh, you know, highly decorated military general. But then he's charged with rape, and that's not good. And so he ends up going to prison. He becomes a jailbird for a while. But then he, it gets worse. He becomes a forgotten jailbird because the person who promised to put in a good word for him doesn't do it. And so he's stuck in prison for years. And so the trajectory for dear St. Joe was not laden with hope, right? I mean, it's pretty dark and pretty dismal for a big, big chunk of his life. And then from this external source comes a new status, a new status. Uh, He is given this status verbally from the Pharaoh, but then externally as well uh, from the Pharaoh. So it's not just the word of the Pharaoh, but he's given symbols from the Pharaoh. And one of those symbols is a new name. Uh, Our own deacon did a very good job pronouncing the name, which is nearly unpronounceable. Uh, I will now try. The new name is Zaphanath Panea. That is a, a, a Hebrew form of an Egyptian phrase. 
It's a very real Egyptian phrase suggesting that the book of Genesis has all sorts of fascinating ancient linguistic connections to the Egyptian language. The problem is we have no idea what it means, not a clue. Uh, Josephus, the ancient Jewish historian, writes about it and says, you know, your bet's as good as mine, and your guess is as good as mine. And, uh, and later, St. Jerome, the translator of the, uh, the, the Greek and Hebrew scriptures into Latin, said, I think it means savior of the world, but I don't have a good reason to say that. Uh, and uh, I believe him. And uh, the only thing that we know about it is that it quotes uh, Egyptian in a clear way in one section of one word, nea, panea. Nea means life in Egyptian. It means life. The best we can come up with is that maybe this name refers to Joseph as a securer of life. That is, Pharaoh gives him this name that references life because he's trying to tell, uh, not, not just to remind himself, but to tell his nation, the only reason that you're still alive is because he exists. This man, who rose from the dead, so to speak, metaphorically, came out of the pit, did so in order to give this nation life, provide bread for the country. Uh, and so he gives him a new name, which suggests a new status. But he also gives him a new garment. This is verse 42. I invite you to check it out. Then Pharaoh took his signet ring from his hand and put it on Joseph's hand. We'll stop there for a minute. Now, that's an incredibly important act because what that means is that Joseph, whenever he makes a pronouncement or declaration, carries with him or, or signs a document, right, presses it with a signet ring, it means that he bears the authority of the king in that moment. Incidentally, this also occurred with our own beloved Thomas Cranmer, the Archbishop of Canterbury, who in many ways founded our tradition. Uh, he was the author of the Book of Common Prayer as well as the Articles of Religion, had immense influence in the Anglican uh, uh, faith. And Henry VIII, when he was having an off day with the bishops, would give his signet ring to uh, Thomas Cranmer, who would wear it in the king's stead, uh, which suggested to the rest of the bishops, you have to listen to me because I bear the authority of the king who right now doesn't want to deal with you. Uh, and the same thing is happening here. Pharaoh is giving his ring, trusting his authority to another person. But it's more than that. It says that he clothed him in garments of fine linen and put a gold chain about his neck. There's a big theme in the Joseph epic that has to do with clothing. It keeps coming back time and time again. Now, back then, as it does now, uh, clothing symbolizes status. Now, I don't know anything about that because I shop at Salvo and my wife dresses me, but, um, and I'm not embarrassed about that. I don't have taste, and she does, and so it works out pretty well. But, uh, but what's interesting in the Joseph epic, of course, is that his clothes keep changing, right? He starts off with Versace. He starts off with a $30,000 getup that's meant for reclining, not working in a field. But then his brothers rip that garment from him and dip it in the blood of an animal, to suggest that he's been murdered in some grisly fashion. Well, then he inherits uh, um, a slave garment, right? And he wears that slave garment in his rather uh, fancy apartment with Potiphar and Potiphar's wife until Potiphar's wife rips off that garment, takes that from him. And now he's naked again and thrown in prison. Then he wears prisoner's clothes. And then that's taken away. And finally, he is graced with the clothing of the king. He is wearing the best clothing now, royal linen, right, that is uh, set aside for those of the highest caste within the Egyptian structure. Uh, and so he is considered to be a very royal and regal person. And so the clothing is there to send a message. It's an external symbol suggesting that he has had a renewal of status. In other words, uh, it isn't like Joseph started off well, 
and then he had a terrible decline, and now he's well again. He started off well, then he had a decline, and now he's excellent. He's superior. He is now the second most powerful man in the world. Uh, and so he has a renewal of status, and even more than that. But we also see another theme of renewal in this passage, the renewal of family. This is verse 50. Before the year of famine came, two sons were born to Joseph. Asenath, the daughter of Potipharah, priest of On, bore them to him. Joseph called the name of the firstborn Manasseh, for he said, God has made me forget all my hardship and all my father's house. The name of the second he called Ephraim, for God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. Now, in the ancient Middle East, family was everything. And, and the family was, was a unit meant for survival. You needed your family just to make it. And, and in fact, family was so interconnected that it was uh, common in ancient literature when you uh, were written about that they would include your father in that uh, naming of you, right? So it's Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob lining up all the dads. And even uh, when, when Jesus is dealing with one of his chief apostles, Peter, he calls him Simon, son of John, right? Or Jonah, depending on the translation. Now, that could be positive or negative, depending on your parentage, right? That could shed good light on you or, or poor light on you. But nevertheless, you were connected to a system and a family that was much bigger than your individual life and self. Uh, well, this is a man who was robbed of all of that. He was robbed of his family, robbed of his clan, robbed of his land, robbed of his garment. He was a nobody, right? Uh, he was uh, lost in a desert with a horse with no name. I mean, you know, oh my gosh. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it's so good. I mean, the music of the 70s needs to resurrect for you, some of you. Um, but, but what he has in this bit of scripture is a tangible redemption. He gets a family. Uh, the man with nothing all of a sudden has something. Uh, notice it mentions his wife and it mentions his children. He has a wife and she, I want you to notice because the text mentions it twice, which means it's underscoring the point. She is the daughter of a pagan priest. So there's that. What does that mean? Life is complicated. You got to deal with it. I don't know. I mean, you know, it's complicated. Um, but, you know, he marries her and there's probably all sorts of political reasons why he has to marry her. And maybe she's really attractive. So it works out pretty well. But he's married to her. But what's interesting is how he raises his children. Did you notice that? He gives them Jewish names. And the word uh, Yahweh, or at least the abbreviation of it, is included in those names. And so the names of his children represent his religious tradition. Now, why is that important? Because maybe you've met uh, families that have a, a sort of a divided religious schematic within their own home. And they, they try to sort of balance the force and say, well, on one Sunday, we're going to go to your synagogue. But on the other Sunday, we're going to go to my church. And they try to equalize everything and make it palatable. He doesn't do that at all. He's essentially saying that as for me and my house, we're going to go in a particular direction. And while there are many benefits to belonging in Egyptian culture and having a high and prominent place in Egyptian culture, even within that culture, we're going to have our own miniaturized culture. And we're going to have, as the center of our culture, this God who brings life from death and this God who can create a new family uh, in light of my own tragic familial losses. And so that's what's happening to Joseph. He lost everything, but now he regains things. 
And this new uh, family is a, a, an image of a tangible recovery. And that's, of course, what Scripture promises you. It's not just existential, you know. I mean, yes, I don't deny that Christianity brings about a certain psychological and spiritual and emotional lift, particularly if you understand the gospel. If you really understand that God, uh, the ground of being is for you and has proven that in his own humanization, right? In his own joining, um, uh, joining together of the, the earthly and the heavenly in Jesus Christ and the offering of his blood and his life and his love on the cross. If you understand that and you begin to inculcate it, it really will give you an existential lift. But that's not all it promises because it also has ramifications regarding your plumbing because you'll have a plumbing problem sometime in your life. You'll have dental problems just like me sometime in your life. You'll have cardiac problems. You'll have lupus. You'll have terrible allergies uh, d during different uh, seasonal changes. Or you'll have difficulty with your, your spouse. Or you'll have a period of time where you're, uh, for no good reason, depressed. And Jesus Christ cares about all of that too. And you need a little tangible redemption, truth be told. And that's why we have a risen Jesus with a risen body who promises a risen world, a new heavens and a new earth, in which you and all your plumbing issues and your dental problems will all be cured once and for all. And so we see a little bit of that tangible redemption here in the renewal of Joseph's family. So we have a renewal of status, a renewal of family. There's also a renewal of responsibility. This is verse 56. So when the famine had spread over all the land, Joseph opened all the storehouses and sold to the Egyptians, for the famine was severe in the land of Egypt. Moreover, all the earth came to Egypt to Joseph to buy grain because the famine was severe over all the earth. I want you to notice that Joseph's new status was accompanied by a new responsibility. He became a caterer, and a caterer not just for Egypt, but for the whole planet. And it's important, I think, to notice that rights don't come without responsibilities. In the United States, we love our rights. In fact, we even have uh, what we regard very often as a near-sacred document called the Bill of Rights uh, that uh, suggests very boldly that, that core human rights are not given by the state. They're recognized by the state, but they come from God. They have their origin in the heavens. And so we've enshrined that in the law, right? But those rights always correspond with responsibilities because... Uh, you're given a right so that you will become a fully-fledged and marvelous human being within our system, that you'll become a good citizen. And uh, that goes right back to the garden, where we have rights and responsibilities. In the garden, Adam and Eve had the right to call themselves the so a son and a daughter of God. They had uh, this Edenic protectorate in which they would be uh, uh, preserved from the effects of mortality. And they could, uh, and they also not only had those rights, but corresponding responsibilities where they had to tend the earth and make it fruitful, take a good creation and perfect it through your labor. They had responsibilities. And so does Joseph. He similarly is a caretaker of the earth. And it is Joseph's responsibility, notice, not to uh, create a religious conversion in Egypt, but simply to prevent starvation. That was his task. And that's what he did. It was very interesting. One ancient commentator wrote that Joseph's task in Egypt was woefully unspiritual. Woefully unspiritual. And he was critiquing this element of Joseph's life. If Joseph were the, uh, were, were the real deal and uh, fully embracing of the divine vision, he would have become the 
functional equivalent of a Billy Graham in the midst of, you know, of, uh, of Pharaoh's land. And I actually think that's a woeful misreading of the life of Joseph and of his effect. Uh, I say that because within our own reformational tradition, we understand that human beings are generally given two mandates. One is called the creation mandate, and the other is called the redemption mandate. And the two are both from God, and they're both good, but they're both different. The creation mandate goes back to the garden, in which we are to tend the garden or tend the world and fill the world and steward it to take the material world and cause it to flourish as it should. And any aim toward that end is good. That's the creation mandate that you are given as a creature. Now, Christians also have a redemptive mandate, that is to spread the gospel of Christ's gracious work uh, via his death and resurrection to a world that is entrenched in sin. But we have both going on at the same time, a creation mandate and a redemptive mandate, and both mandates are holy work. And Joseph's responsibility in Egypt in this time was to use his wisdom as well as his foresight for the good of this world. Because this world is worth fighting for. This world as it is now. To create a better world and a more just world. And a world more in alignment with the ultimate purposes of God. That is godly work. And uh, it, it was interesting that I uh, reread this week something from uh, Wendell Berry. In which he seeks to illustrate this concept using uh, vibrant and memorable imagery. This is what Berry uh, writes. So friends... Every day, do something that won't compute. Love the Lord, work for nothing. Love someone who does not deserve it. Ask questions that have no answers. Plant sequoias. Expect the end of the world, but laugh. Be joyful, though you have considered all the facts. Go with your love to the fields. Lie down in the shade. Swear allegiance to your highest thoughts. Be like the fox who makes more tracks than necessary, some in the wrong direction, and practice resurrection. What did he mean? As you engage as a renewed human being within a decaying world, you bring with you resurrection power. You bring with you a bit of the eschaton, a bit of the next world into this one, and you create with God's power a little life and a little hope that wouldn't be there otherwise. And so as you love the Lord, the redemptive mandate, and as you plant sequoias, you're doing resurrection work, the work of the next world, if you will. And Joe's responsibility was to practice resurrection, to cater to the needs not just of Egypt, but to the whole world. So he became a man through this renewal of responsibility, now not just overlooking the fields of his father, but overlooking the fields of Egypt, became a source of life and vitality for the known world of that, uh, of that time. So, Joseph became the face of a God-given renaissance and renewal. And I think that concept of renewal is journeying even toward us at this moment. I think it can be ours. And I'm not just saying that as empty preachers speak. I think it's very true. That because we all want that. We all want some sort of personal renewal and renaissance. We all need a new direction, and we know it in our bones. And I think we need the three things that Joseph received in our own ways, and they are, of course, a renewal of status, of family, and responsibility. A closing word about each, and I'll be brief. Without God, our status, like the status of Joseph at one point, is simply a dweller in the pit. That we are in a box canyon of our own making, and we can't get out. 
the truth is that we are defined by sin, recidivism, and nature's night. Without God, that's the end of the story. But thank God, God does not retreat from our box canyons. Instead, he, he meets us right there and grants us a new status. So um, I was once doing a retreat for a church in another part of the world uh, in which um, there was this uh, high school girl who was once, and I knew her when she was a child, very effervescent and curly hair, beaming smile, but she went through a very a serious goth phase when she was like 17. Do you know what I mean? She dyed her hair black. I don't know if goth is still a thing. I kind of miss it in a way about black makeup and black fingernails. I mean, she pulled off the, the, the um, omnipresent Halloween look very, very well. Uh, and I um, more power to her. But, uh, but her parents forced her to have a pastoral conversation with me. By the way, bad idea. Never do that because it, automatically they'll lie to the minister because that, it's weird and awkward and terrible. But nevertheless, she had a conversation with me. And I think because she was at the end of her rope, she was more honest than she normally would have been. And, uh, and I said, uh, after she expressed lots of anger, I said, so what do you think is the, the source of why you're so mad? What's going on? And then she made this, uh, she made this statement, and I'll never forget it. And I'm going to use PG language, don't worry. But she said, look, um, two years ago, I had this boyfriend. And at one point, he wanted, he wanted candid photographs of me. So I took them and sent them to him. And then we broke up. And he took those photographs that were on his phone and wrote the word skank on all of them and sent them to all of my friends and family. And now everybody has them. And I will always be the skank. And she started to cry, and I started to cry, because while that didn't happen, can't you feel that pain? I mean, that shame, that embarrassment? And then I thought to myself, what would Christ say if he was sitting on this ugly couch near her, and he was looking at her pain and seeing her tears? What would he say to this young woman? The, the Christ with the golden eyes of compassion, what would he say? And I think he would say this, I don't see you that way. I don't see you that way. I know they, they might, and you do, but I don't. Because I give you a new name, and I give you new clothes, and I give you a new label, and your new label is justified. That's a theological term that means God has declared that you're beautiful. God has declared that you are morally beautiful. It's like you never did anything wrong. And there's nowhere you can step in this new kingdom of God that disqualifies you from that declaration from heaven that you are in fact beautiful and holy and good. And God has established it through his own personal word to you. And that's why we remember in scripture that prodigals always get a new wardrobe. You know? Even in the book of Revelation, it says that they have washed their clothes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. And that's not just true for Joseph, symbolically. It's true for you in real time that God sees you that way. That's your renewal of status. Now, something about a renewal of family. You may have a really wonderful relationship with your family of origin. I hope you do. But many people do not. It's marked by dark secrets or painful neglect or addiction. I have a friend uh, who grew up in a celebrity family that was highly addicted, and there were a lot of affairs going on. And um, a friend of hers wrote her a note after she became a Christian 
at a key moment when she was having terrible trouble with her difficult family. And this friend wrote to her and said, Dear Sarah, please remember that you are adopted. What does that mean? That she had a new family of origin with God. That she had a new father who would always love her. And that she had siblings in Christ who were wonderful and at times would drive her crazy. But this is a family that would seek to love each other and figure this thing out together. And, and, and have a sense of connection, formative connection that could reorient us and make us healthy. Renewal of family. And lastly, something about a renewal of responsibility. You know, everything you do, however physical, is a spiritual act. God made you to tend part of the garden, to steward something into beauty. And so my question to you is, what do you want to do? What do you want to do? How do you want to practice resurrection here and now? To see a little foretaste uh, of the kingdom to come. Uh, what do you want to do? And some of you are very gifted at interceding for people. You know, when you pray to God with other people, people really do have an encounter with the Holy Spirit, and you're, you're gifted that way. Or maybe you're gifted at, like, cleaning up messes. Like, you walk into a, a situation that is in complete disarray, and you know how to create feng shui. You just do. And you, and you magically make it happen. And, and some of you are very good at mediating. When there are warring factions in a room, you can bring people together like nobody else. Some of you are great with hospitality and cooking, and you create um, family and love where there is no family and love uh, through a meal. Jesus did that a lot. Some of you are good at writing poetry. Some of you tutor kids in chemistry. Some of you offer words of encouragement that lift depressed people out of their funk. Some of you paint with watercolors. Some of you take long hair and turn it into dreadlocks, and people like Don Shepson need you. Um, uh, right? But you have something. You have something. And uh, I'll tell you what mine is, right? So in my own life, I have very few marketable skills. If I didn't have this job, I'd be homeless. Right? <laughs> yeah. Um, but this is, this is what God's given me. So God uh, gave me uh, this uncanny low self-esteem. It's true. In which the only thing that has made its way through the thick barriers of self-loathing is the gospel. That's it. It's the only thing that made a way is when God and Jesus says, I don't hate you. I don't think you're disgusting. I've dealt with all of it, you know, and gave me a new label. That, for whatever reason, for heaven's reasons, worked. And so it's my life's goal to, like, convince you that that's true, not just for me, but for you. Well, that's what God gave me. What about you? Because what you have is no less significant. And you have something to offer, something of resurrection quality to offer. And when you figure out what it is and you start to offer it little by little, you will see the world rise from the dead little by little. So when you know your status, your family, and your responsibility all renewed by the Spirit of God, I, I want to conclude with this. Not even the worst and fiercest powers of hell can ever stand against you. Amen. Free at last, they took your life, they could not.